I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Good morning. Welcome to another Morning Java brought to you by our friends at the Get Cafe Market, where uh, it's the best time of year. It's fall. They have the Pilgrim Sandwich back, which is like a Thanksgiving in a sub. Uh, incredible. Check it out. You can get it without cranberry sauce if you're like me. Um, and then two different kinds of pumpkin milkshakes. That's crazy. Uh, both are good. Check them out. But uh, yeah, Monday, uh, some pretty big moves in the Penguins front office. Um, the first move uh, early uh, around noon. Uh, the Penguins fired his assistant GM, Jason Carmanos, um, and replaced him, uh, both of his roles. So the new uh, assistant GM in the interim, uh, Sam Ventura, who is the director of hockey research, and then uh, Carmanos was serving as the GM of Wilkes-Barre, and then he's going to be uh, in the interim. Uh, that job is going to Eric Keesley. Um Kind of curious timing, Dave. I mean, what did you think about that that move? Uh, it was quite surprising. I certainly did not see it coming. Uh, the people I've spoken to inside the organization really didn't seem to see it coming. Um, you know, uh, Carmanos had just been made the general manager of Wilkes-Barre uh, not long ago. Certainly suggests that uh, the plan at that point had been to have him in the future or in the organization. Uh, for at least a little while. Uh, when I asked Jim Rutherford why the move had been made, if he would like to explain it, and he said no, which is as uh, much detail as he went into. Uh, he did uh, confirm that it was uh, nothing nefarious uh, behind the, the firing, which Uh, with the times we live in, unfortunately, is a question you always have to ask. Uh, For his part, Jason Carmanos, I was able to reach by text. Um, He said that he wasn't inclined to discuss the situation, at least not right now. But just by the tone of, uh, of his text, it really seemed like this was not something that he had seen coming. So it's obviously something we'll continue to look into to see exactly what was behind it. But I dare say it was a move that, that caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the timing. I mean, they, they just named him uh, GM of Wilkes-Barre uh, two months ago. I, I, I think it was right I mean, after they uh, promoted Vellucci. Um, I mean, you also figure if you're going to make any changes to the GM, I, I don't know why it's coming now after they're pretty much done in free agency. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what, what else can come from that. And, I mean, the, the big thing, I know a lot of fans are like, oh, you know, they're opening up a spot for, for Botterill, but it, it seems like that's not the case. No, it, it's not. I mean, I fully expect Jason Botterill, unless some other team offers him a GM job, uh, I expect him to rejoin the Penguins at some point. But this move was not made with the idea of, of bringing – Botterill back. 
Uh, Rutherford confirmed that they will be hiring an assistant GM, which you know is only logical. Uh, but I don't think it will be Botterill. And frankly, if he comes back or when he comes back, I would expect it to be in a position something along the lines of associate GM, which is a notch above assistant and, and is the title that he had here before he went and uh, joined the senators. So, you know, to wrap it up, yeah, I, I do expect Botterill to be back, but no, this move was not made to clear a spot for him. Frankly, uh, considering the size of the front office staff they've had in the past, you know, they wouldn't have had to open a spot for him. You know, there was a time when Carmanos and Botterill and uh, Billy Guerin were all here and uh, possibly even Tom Fitzgerald. I'm not positive about all of the overlap there, but in any case, there, there were a lot more desks occupied in their front office uh, a few years ago than there are now. Yeah, and in, in the interim, uh, I think it's pretty cool to see Sam uh, Ventura step into that, that role. He's, he's young, he's like, uh, I think he's like 32, 33. He's uh, from Carnegie Mellon. He, um, he's an analytics guy. He founded the website um, War on Ice, which is one of like the pioneering advanced analytics websites in hockey. Um, I know he was doing stuff for like the Carnegie Mellon hockey team, and then that's when the Penguins picked him up. But they added him in 2015 as a consultant, and then um, full time in 2017. So he's he's been around for a while, and um, it, it's cool to see him get get a bigger role. Um, he he was directly under uh, so like Hermanus was, was the one that brought him on. He was very uh, analytics you know focused, and then uh, yeah. that's that's what Ventura's role is. So. Um, I don't know if he's a candidate for, for the full-time job, but um, it would be interesting to see maybe if they could take on a more analytical approach if he, if he is the guy. Well, Rutherford is pretty strong on analytics as well, which is why he brought Carmanos in. And as you say, uh, Carmanos brought in Ventura then. Um, so, but, you know, as far as, as what the exact division of labor will be once the entire staff has been assembled is kind of tough to say. And it might hinge on exactly who it is that they, that they hire for the assistant or assistant's uh, position. You know, they have had more than one uh, subordinate to, to Rutherford in the past. And, you know, I don't think it's out of the question that, that they will again in the future. Uh, any hirings, though, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they put off just because of, of the revenue that, that's being lost because of the pandemic. They're, they're trying to hold down their expenses, which I think is probably the primary reason that, that Jason Botterill hasn't been brought back uh, to this point. Yeah, and then uh, a couple hours later, they announced a another hiring. Uh, Trevor Daly uh, reti officially retired. He was playing for the Red Wings, and uh, he's coming on, um, joining the hockey operations department. They they said he's going to be an eye in the sky, work directly under uh, Jim Rutherford, and and kind of being uh, watching NHL games, AHL games, and kind of being adv he's an advisor. Um, and I thought that's a good move. I I know uh, Rutherford. You talked to him. Sounded like he's wanted to do this for a while yeah he said uh you know from the, the when he was around trevor daly when when daly was here in 2016 and 2017 um he was just very impressed with him um 
uh, it seemed like primarily as, as just a, a human being. He also obviously recognized and appreciated his hockey acumen, but uh, Daly's personality, the way he uh, formed relationships with teammates and things like that really seemed to make an impression on Rutherford. Uh, he said he had decided while Daly was still here that he would he was the kind of guy that Rutherford would like to uh, get into management at some point. It's worth inter uh, noting that when uh, Daly spoke with reporters on Monday afternoon that he didn't rule out possibly getting into coaching at some point. Uh, he did say that, uh, you know, right now he's, he's leaning toward the management side of things, but that the position he's being brought into will allow him, it's, it sounds like, to dabble in coaching at least a little bit. And so he didn't rule out uh, possibly veering in that direction at, at some point in the future. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's good with, you know, I mean, defensemen, and they actually have pretty good defensive prospects coming up now with uh, Pio Joseph, Maniscalco, uh, Camley. Uh, I think it'll be good for him to work with them because he's going to be working in the AHL. And you mentioned coaching. I mean, um, he, he could be an assistant coach for Wilkes-Barre a, a few games. They, they do that with um, like de player development coaches like, like Tom Kostopoulos will sometimes be uh, an assistant coach. I mean, that's something uh, Daly could step into too for a few games during the season. Um, and be that that I and report back to Rutherford. So, um, yeah, seems like it seems like a good move for the organization. Yeah, I, I don't think that you know that's going to be a uh, a major aspect of his job. I, I think primarily in in the uh, evaluation of American League talent, I think it'll be primarily guys on other teams. Uh, you know, kind of like a uh, the 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 information that their pro scouting staff assembles on guys that they might eventually pursue in free agency or trades or things like that. But you could certainly see daily serving as an eye in the sky uh, for, for Wilkes-Barre on occasion or working a few games behind the bench just to get a nice level view of, of their prospects to uh, kind of flesh out his, his perspective on those guys. Yeah, he's a good guy to learn from. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, so we don't know when next season's going to start. We don't know when uh, training camp for next season is going to start. We don't know how long training camp is going to be. Um, and it seems like there's a push for uh, maybe different lengths of training camps for different teams. I'm uh, Several reports that uh, – so the seven teams that were not part of the return-to-play agreement, uh, the NHL, there's mm, some sentiment with at least, at least the Ducks, maybe some others, that uh, they would – like to have a longer training camp, you know, citing, you know, they haven't played since March <laughs> and the season might not start till February. Uh, I think it's a really interesting concept. Dave, what do you think? Well, I mean, superficially, it, it sounds fair and reasonable. Uh, you know, the 24 teams that 
were included in the in the postseason did get a couple of weeks of a training camp before the games began and the seven clubs that were excluded did not um on the other hand and i think a much stronger case is that the teams or the rosters that those teams will have whenever hockey returns are not the same as the rosters they had in march uh, there have been trades, there have been players moved through free agency, there have been retirements, there have been drafts. Um, I think that rather than leveling the playing field for the teams that didn't qualify for postseason play, you're putting the teams that did qualify uh, at a competitive disadvantage. Um, and if you think about it, the, the teams that don't qualify for the playoffs don't get to conduct camps while the playoffs are going on. That's one of the penalties for not getting into the playoffs. So, you know, it, it's unfortunate that they will have gone so long without, you know, having, having a team together. But, you know, if, if you don't want to run that risk, uh, you know, don't miss the playoffs during a pandemic year. Yeah, I think there's just so much shuffling and, and free agency and other moves that, like you said, it, the rosters are very different. I mean, like the, the Senators were not there, but uh, I mean, their starting goalie played in August. Uh, so I, I don't, does, so to take it that extra training camp, it really doesn't make, make a whole lot of sense. Um, plus, I mean, I mean, what guys, guys that were injured and didn't participate in the return to play because they were, they were injured. Does, does Dominic Simone get to report to, camp with Calgary a little bit earlier because he didn't play since what February either it it it's just a, there's there's so many different levels to it it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh we're we're on the same page I mean if they want to if those teams want a longer training camp uh, what's wrong every every team could have a longer training camp I don't I don't see what the what the issue is there I mean the the players uh you figured I mean, most of them want to get back on the ice too because I mean this is the longest a lot of them have been uh, away from the game for a while as well. Yeah, um, although I, the Players Association might have something to say about that. I'm pretty sure the maximum length of a uh, training camp is spelled out in, in the CBA. I'm not positive of that. It's never really been an issue before this, but you know there is a designated starting date for training camps every year. Um, I suspect that the uh, Players Association would want some sort of concession in, in return for a longer training camp because, you know, players don't get paid uh, during camp. They, you know, they get, you know, I think some sort of stipend, you know. Per diem. Yeah. But, uh, you know, their their salaries don't get paid until, until the game starts. So, um you know, they might run into a complication there. I suspect ultimately that the non-playoff teams are, are going to get their request and that something will be worked out to accommodate them. I just don't think it's a, it's a very good idea or particularly fair. Yeah, well, and if those guys want to get back on the ice, I mean, the NHL announced, I want to say like a month ago now, that um, that uh, facilities could reopen for like those informal skates. It was, I, I believe, October 15th, as long as uh, there, uh, I think I want to say the minimum was five players for that team that wanted to use the facilities, but the teams could reopen them. So 
if enough ducks want to get together and skate, you know, this early, this, uh, this soon leading up to camp, uh, they can. Um, uh, not every team, I want to say, takes advantage of those, of those informal skate, skate opportunities. I mean, you look back leading up to the, to the return to play, I mean, all the Penguins were, were here and skating pretty early. They had a really, really full group, so it was kind of like they had a longer training camp. I mean, coaches aren't allowed to be a part of that, at least not like, the, like Sullivan, like the head coaches. They can have like skating coaches. But um, so they can at least get on the ice. But I know that wasn't the case with uh, with every other team. I mean, Montreal didn't, you know, start skating until later. So I mean, if if the players want to get on the ice, that they they can. Yes, and good thing for the Penguins, they got in that extra work while the Canadians uh, weren't bothering to get together. It really showed in the series. <laughs> All right, so something that could look different next year is uh, the draft lottery format. A lot of people talking about that after uh, this year's format. This year's format is a little different with the return to play. Um, the, the, what has everyone worked up is that the Red Wings did not get the, the number one overall pick. They were by far the worst team. Um, not by tanking. They were that bad on merit, and they still did not get the number one pick. Um, and a lot of people uh, aren't aren't happy about that. They don't think that's fair. I know this is something you and I actually disagree with. I don't think they should touch the, the draft lottery format. So, I mean, for people that don't know, um, they, you know, the, the non-playoff teams are in, are in the draft lottery. They only draw for the top three spots. Um, and the worse the team is, the better odds they have. Um, obviously, you know, Red Wings, they had the best odds out of everyone, but it does not guarantee that number one overall pick. Um, I, I, I like the format as, as it is, Dave. I know you don't. Uh, what do you think should happen with that? No, I don't. I mean, I agree that you have to build in some sort of safeguard against a franchise tanking uh, to guarantee itself the top pick. Um, I mean, we certainly saw the Penguins do that in 1983-84 when they had 38 points and managed to beat out New Jersey for the bottom spot and, and got Mario Lemieux uh, in return for that. Um, but I, I do feel that, you know, while, while you want to keep a lottery of some sort, that you shouldn't be allowed to drop more than one place in the draft order. Uh, for example, this year, um, the Red Wings, by virtue of having the worst record in the league, uh, should have been assured of no worse than the number two pick in the draft. Uh, that way, if, the, if there is one big prize, like a Lemieux or a Sidney Crosby, um, you can't guarantee yourself uh, the, the rights to that player by you know, putting the worst possible team on the ice every night. Um, but, you know, if you are genuinely bad and, and, you know, teams do go through legitimate rebuilds, um, I think you should have an opportunity to, to get good players. And, you know, the Wings probably got a pretty good player at fourth overall, but not the caliber of, of you know, the, the guy they would have gotten first, you know, if they were picking first or second. Yeah, I, I just think after, 
a lot of years it's just so tight after uh in those first couple of picks i mean it was it was Lafreniere went no you know number one to the rangers and the the kings got quentin byfield and the senators got uh tim stutzel after Lafreniere, I, it, it really was up in up in the air no like it wasn't clear who the next couple of picks were going to be i don't think the Red Wings missed out that badly on falling to, to fourth. You can still get a really good um, player at number four. I think uh, their GM, Steve Eiserman, has to be aware of that. He was a number four overall pick. Um, I just uh, – I, I, don't, I don't think it should be any closer to, to a guarantee. I think right now, you, you know, you, you should only be able to drop one, one spot. Right now, you can only – if you're first, you can only drop to fourth. That's not that far. I, I don't know. And the teams that, that were up there that, that, you know, earned that spot, they were also bad. It's not like the Red Wings are the only uh, bad team. I mean, the, the Senators also really uh, earned a pick, you know, that, that high. And the Kings uh, earned a pick that high. They were also, like, very bad on merit. Um, I, I, I don't really have a problem with the format. I think maybe if you could adjust the odds a little better. That, so because um, I think what the Red Wings maybe only had, I think it was a 24.5% odds. I think there's a way to, to adjust odds to, to at least have, have the worst team, maybe a little better chance. But um, I think falling to four is not that big of a loss. And I also don't think that, you know, finishing 15th, or I guess it would be finishing 16th in the, or 15th from, you know, in, from the from bottom uh that you should have a chance to get the number one pick in the draft i think the lottery should be limited to i don't know the top six or seven teams uh, and you can't adjust it year in year out based on how bad the bad teams are but um if you're theoretically that close to uh getting a playoff spot i guess that would be the number 17 club most years um you shouldn't have even a remote possibility of of getting the best player in the draft yeah like because right right now i mean those teams at the bottom it's like you know like one percent two two percent odds it was interesting if you look at the um the lottery that just happened uh because you know they this the the funky year they broke it up into two phases and you know they had the normal drawing and uh, if, uh, if a qualifying team, you know, ball would have won, then they did the second drawing. But that first drawing, the specific ball that was drawn was, um, if, if, if it was based on just the standings and, you know, which team would have had that spot in a normal year, um, the, the ball that got drawn had 2.5% odds of being drawn, uh, and it would have been the Jets. So, to sum up, if this were a normal year and there wasn't the two phases and the qualifying round, the ball that drawn was the Jets ball. The Jets would have gotten Lafreniere. That would have been a little crazy. Would have definitely pissed a lot of people off. I don't know. I think it all worked out on the end. I mean, the Rangers were a genuinely bad team um, in a decent market. Uh, the Lafreniere doesn't have to go somewhere like Ottawa. Um, so I think it all worked out. I don't. I and I think. I, there's a bunch of different suggestions everyone has for, for revamping the lottery or I think, uh, the, one of the worst I've seen, which is still somehow popular is like a, like a tournament of the bad teams and they play for, 
that pick and I, I I know a lot of fans like that which is it is dumb like I it just it's it's it just dumb I mean if if you're you know a borderline forward and someone like Lafreniere is going to come and take your job you're not going to go all out in an extra tournament just to get him um no that's I mean when when teams tank it's it's not because the players intentionally try to lose uh, you know again I'll refer back to the 83 84 penguins where you know their 38 point season was orchestrated by management mm-hmm. um you know they uh, traded away their their best defenseman Randy Carlisle and got no immediate return they got a ultimately a pretty nice return they ended up with a number nine pick in the draft and and a serviceable defenseman named Mo Mantha uh, in return for Randy Carlisle but you know none of that help arrived in the 83-84 season when they were trying to hold down their their point total um so you know it's 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 not a question of, of players going out and intentionally performing badly so mm-hmm. that as you say someone better can come in and take their job but but management and coaches can go a long way uh toward making sure that a that a team is is a failure on the ice yeah i i think i should plug the documentary on that season i know you can find it on youtube or if you just google it. it's called playing to lose um about that season and they have, you know, the, the coach and then like Eddie Johnson and Eddie Johnson still doesn't admit that they tanked. I mean, he, not explicitly. I know he said he, uh, the, the line he uses in that documentary a lot is that, you know, you have to do what's best for your franchise. Uh, he won't no, say. No, and Gotti, uh, who he was admits the coach. It. Yeah. He was adamant right up until the day he left the job that they had, you know, done everything they possibly could to win every game and perhaps they did with the uh personnel that he had to work with but uh it wasn't a very imposing group yeah I think of it in the documentary and Gotti is kind of more honest that they were uh tanking on purpose but I mean in the, like in that documentary like Ari Ari talks in it and Ari says like you know we were not trying to lose but it was uh management calling up guys from the minors who uh really shouldn't have been there and demoting guys who should be in the NHL and like you said trading uh Norris winner Randy Carlisle uh so yeah there was my my favorite uh personnel move that year might not have been trading Carlisle but rather sending down a goalie named Roberto Romano after he had the temerity to win two games in a row and uh they brought up a gentleman named Vincent Tremblay because Eddie Johnston said we want to see what he could do, knowing full well that the things that Vincent Tremblay could do did not include stopping hockey pucks. 